0: Good morning. May it please the court. My name
1: is Liz Kramer. I'm our state solicitor general, and I'm honored to be here this morning representing DNR. Save Our Calhoun initiated this action to challenge DNR's authority to rename a lake. But before this court can get to the merits of that authority issue, it has to address a preliminary authority issue, which is whether Save Our Calhoun could bring in this action not as a normal civil action but as an extraordinary civil action under our writ of quo rento. It cannot. This court's precedent is clear that that writ should not be used to challenge the conduct of public officials. As a result, the district court appropriately dismissed this case. So I'd like to start by talking about our ancient, extraordinary writ of Quo Warranto, and its development through Minnesota law. For about 150 years, this writ was extremely narrow in scope. It was to be used in two circumstances. The first is when someone was usurping a public office, right? They hadn't appropriately been appointed. The second is when an entity was usurping a corporate franchise those were the only two instances where Minnesota law recognized the writ of quo morento for about 150 years and in particular the courts said not only were those the only two instances but you couldn't use it to challenge any misconduct either of officials or of corporations that changed significantly in 2007, when the Court of Appeals issued its published decision in the Svigum versus Hansen matter. In that matter, the Court of Appeals took a look at this whole 150 years of case law and said, announced a new rule, which is that parties can bring the writ of quo rento. Council,
2: I just wanna stop you for a minute. What about purpage? the Palmer versus Purpage case.
1: Your Honor, in that case, um, the court didn't have the opportunity to really address the full scope of when the writ was appropriate.
2: But we certainly concluded in that case that the writ was an appropriate remedy uh, to challenge the activity of the Lieutenant Governor, correct?
1: I would have to check my notes on that case.
2: Well, let me just ask you this. You rely on Loman. That's the principal case that you rely on um, for this idea that the writ is not a proper remedy here. And I'm wondering if this case is different from Loman in this way. So, in Loman, there was no question that the commissioner there or the government official in that case could do. What was the, the, that commissioner could have purchased those uniforms? the commissioner just didn 't do it in the right way they didn 't follow the public bidding process, and we said in that situation, the writ doesn 't is not an appropriate remedy, but here the argument is about the authority of the commissioner in the first instance. The argument is the commissioner does not have the power to do what the commissioner did here, and it seems to me that that this case then is much different from Lohman, and I'd like your help with that.
1: Your Honor, Lohman isn't the only case that stands for that proposition. There's also the Grosbach case that came in the 50s that similarly said, we don't look at misconduct at all, even when that misconduct is ultra-virus, meaning that a public official was without authority, right, to do what they're doing. The cases have said that the only time Right, that Lohman says, the only time we'll even think about um, using a writ of co rento to address misconduct or alleged misconduct by a public official is if it's so severe as to ipso facto justify a forfeiture of the office. I think what that means is, for example, if you have a judge that has to live in a certain county and they move, that's the kind of thing that would be ipso facto forfeiture. But not it can't be just acting without authority, Your Honor.
2: Well, it, the Racing Commission in Rice, I mean, people didn't lose office in that case. The Lieutenant Governor didn't lose her office, his office in the Palmer versus Perpich case.
1: You're absolutely right, Chief Justice Gilday. I think part of what happened here and the way that our courts kind of lost their way on the writ of co is that litigants were a little sloppy in how they used it. So in Rice no one addressed whether the writ of code warranted was appropriate to address, whether the racing commission could expand, right, to telephone racing.
2: Well, that seems kind of like an odd argument to make now though. I mean, we had that, that case came to us, we sent it back to the district court for development of the record, and then it came back to us again. So if, if there's some underlying assumption there that the writ is not a proper remedy, why did we go through that whole up and down and all around process? To litigate the case, we would have just said, no, go away, this writ's not proper.
1: Your Honor, if neither party raised the issue of the writ being proper, I can understand why the court just took it as a given that this was an appropriate use of the writ in that case, um, in the Rice versus Connolly case. Does it matter in those cases, Rice and Perpich, that those were constitutional? There are claims
2: that the, the officers or the entities were violating the Minnesota Constitution?
1: That could be one way of distinguishing those. Um, but I also think th- that there's really no need for the writ anymore. And you, you know that that's part of my argument here, um, that we've come to a place where the common law writ um, has been expanded so far, both in SVIGum by the Court of Appeals, and then certainly in the decision below in this case, that it's unrecognizable and no longer something that's extraordinary and unique, but in fact something that has become a writ that's unnecessary. That's because we have the statute to address the original scope of the issue, Minnesota Statute Section 556.01, is the one that says, okay, hey, here's the way that you can now address any time when a public official is usurping a role or a corporation is usurping a franchise. So we have that statutory ability. It's
2: the government's contention that this should have been filed as a declaratory judgment action.
1: Your Honor, I think that the respondent at least should have to show why he couldn't have brought it as that, and they have not done that. Um, we cited a lot of cases, right? We've got that Fletcher case against the city of Minneapolis. We've got the hostage case against Woodbury. We've got the case by former state auditor Rebecca Otto, where they challenged a lot of government actions um, under the declaratory judgment act, under different theories going along with those declaratory judgment act. And to that point, that's the second reason.
3: Counsel, before you get off that point, um, let's let's say that you're right. The court decides Quo Moronto is not an appropriate vehicle here, but the commissioner of the DNR is not above the law. There has to be a vehicle to challenge this kind of decision. Would you agree that declaratory judgment and injunction would be adequate remedies?
1: First, Your Honor, to the premise of your question, not every administrative policy of an agency has to be challengeable.
3: Well, but you're not contending the DNR commissioner's decision here is not reviewable in any way, are you?
1: I'm not contending
3: Okay, so what's the proper vehicle? Is it declaratory judgment seeking an injunction? Yes. Okay. That's what the appellant should have done is what you're saying.
1: I believe that's what the appellant should have done. I, actually, I'm the appellant. That's what Excuse the respondent me, should have
3: done. Um, so it, would the state agree that if that's the proper vehicle, we've, since we're now here in the Supreme Court, everything's been fully briefed, we should consider this petition for writ of quo or to be essentially a complaint seeking a declaratory judgment?
1: Absolutely not, Your Honor. Go
3: why ahead. not? Why, why shouldn't we get to the merits of the case?
1: Because the person who, as you know, right, the person who brings the complaint, the plaintiff usually is the master of their own complaint. It was Savar Calhoun's job to come up with a legal theory that was appropriate to be heard. Um, And here they chose to use this extraordinary ancient writ.
3: They've got a legal theory. The theory is that the commissioner exceeded his authority. Uh, Then it was his. And but. you're you're saying they haven't asked for the right remedy
1: i'm saying they haven't brought the right action if they had brought a declaratory judgment act and then as you know there has to be some legal theory to go along with that so i don't want to presume what legal theory they would have tied together with our
3: legal theory is the commissioner can't change the lake of a name that's more than 40 years old that's it's that simple
1: And the process would have worked differently if they brought it that way. So one important thing I want to point out here is that an aspect of the writ of quo rento is it shifts the burden of proof onto the government instead of keeping the burden with the plaintiff, as in a normal case. It also imposes really short deadlines and precludes any taking of discovery. So we don't know if Savar Calhoun had started this action as it should have right under the normal rules of civil procedure as a deck action even you know with this ultra vires claim or exceeding authority claim what kind of record we would have at this point so again i want to go back to uh the point about why the writ is no longer necessary council can
2: i just um we're well into your time here let's let's just get to the merits um i want to just ask you a question about the merits Um, The government agrees, I think, that the 40-year limitation applies to name changes under 0.05 of the statute. Correct, Your Honor. So wasn't this a voter-initiated name change process under 0.05? Isn't that what started everything here, where voters went to Hennepin County and said, change the name of the lake?
1: Your Honor, the record shows that the impetus for the name change did come through um, the voter petition process and the park board in Hennepin County. But because Hennepin County cannot um, change any lake name after 40 years, it asked DNR to use its separate authority under DNR statute.
2: Isn't that precisely the problem, Council, that what this is, is just a flat out, end around the very detailed process that the legislature wrote in 05. And, and it just it's just, that's just what it is. It's just a, um, an end run around this process.
1: Your Honor, I fundamentally disagree.
2: I mean, it's not as though DNR said, oh, you know what, we gotta go over to Minneapolis and we gotta change the name of the lake there because it's duplicative of the name of another lake in the state of Minnesota. And the, the DNR started this party. That isn't what happened here.
1: Agreed. But the legislature set up two separate processes for naming and changing the names of waterways, right? First, people can do it through this county petition process that's set out in the 0.05 through 0.07 group of statutes. But separately, the legislature gave full authority to DNR to have its own process for giving and changing lake names, may, and may it doesn't I, say I, that it can't initiate with the county.
0: You know, here's my problem with that argument, Council. Um, it seems that uh, we have a situation here that, if you're correct, uh, the least or the the agency with the most authority is the commissioner, who can make a decision to change the name of a lake. Um, that has been in place for more than forty years, but the detailed process involving notice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, applies only to a um, a change of name that is less than forty years i mean that just doesn 't make any sense to me and when i look at oh when I look at the basic statute about the commissioner 's authority, nowhere in there does it say that the commissioner has this exclusive authority. You only get there by implication, it seems to me what how do you respond to that? Let's talk first. Yeah, there's like three questions in there. So let's (laughs) focus. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Let's focus on the the question of the logic of the argument here that the commissioner would have what amounts to unfettered authority for name changes outside of 40 years. um, But we have this detailed process that must be followed uh, if it's less than 40 years.
1: Your Honor, that's the process that the legislature set up in these two parallel statutes, a county petition process that ends 40 years after the lake has been named, and a DNR process that has no time limitations in that statute. To say otherwise would really, you'd have to be adding words to the DNR statute, and we'd have to be essentially setting a policy that the legislature chose not to set. It set up the legislature. Set up this county petition process in 1924.
2: Um, so, isn't there at least a fact question about what happened here?
1: What would be the fact question?
2: Well, on? the fact question is: Is this a process? Was this a process under .05, or is this actually the DNR trying to change the name of a lake?
1: Your Honor, the Commissioner's order um, from January, that's the first document in our appellate addendum, makes clear that the DNR is relying on its own authority under paragraphs 1 and 3 of 83.02. But the
2: DNR's order references the Hennepin County Resolution, which is a matter of public record, and the Hennepin County Resolution says this started with voters coming to the board to initiate this name change.
1: Agreed. But Your Honor, there's nothing in 83.02, the DNR's authority statute, that says it can't accept ideas that come from a county board. In fact, paragraph three specifically talks about how the DNR needs to cooperate with county boards when it's acting under that paragraph and get county board approval, so this idea that you'd have two parallel structures and that in some cases county boards would work with the commissioner to name or rename was exactly so, what's intended by commissioner. So are
0: you president. arguing that that the um, commissioner has to get the county board approval either under subdivision one? In other words, are, are, you, are you saying could, could the commissioner just make just issue an order saying that the name of the lake has changed?
1: Yes, the commissioner could have done that under his authority, just under paragraph one about determining the name.
0: I thought you said in your brief that uh, one of the checks on the authority of the commissioner was subdivision three.
1: When the commissioner chooses to act under subdivision three, that the uh, county board cooperation is one check on The commissioner's authority to the extent where
0: the commissioner doesn't there are no checks on the commissioner's authority
1: i disagree your honor there are at least two checks even when the commissioner is acting under the first paragraph those are one the commissioner is a public person so you have political accountability the second is that um the commissioner has to work with the federal the u.s board on naming to make sure that any names that we approve here also get approved in the federal sense, and those federal policies look closely at what local residents have adopted or want.
0: It uh, it seems to me we're very close to royal prerogative land here, where um, the commissioner gets to decide whatever the commissioner wants to decide and there's no practical check. I mean, um, well, anyway, I I guess that's an argument to have later, but it strikes me then, that the basis of your claim is entirely found in subdivision one. It's just it flat out. The commissioner has the authority to make the change.
1: Your Honor, what I'm saying is, under either subdivision one or subdivision three, the commissioner had authority to do exactly what he did here, and I want. To step back and say it's important to remember that our task in statutory interpretation is to effectuate the intent of the legislature. On that
2: point, counsel, does it matter that when the legislature first set up the name change process in the 1920s, the legislature gave the power to the government entity closest to the people? The counties i mean that was the only power in the 1920s the counties were the only. so that's sort of the premise is that at all relevant to the argument that you're making today that essentially this state official can do whatever the state official wants
1: your honor it's relevant in the sense that you're absolutely right that in 1925 the legislature set up this county petition process only 12 years later in an entirely different chapter of law the legislature set up the State Geographic Board process. It knew full well how to create a 40-year time bar because it had done that explicitly in the county petition process and it chose not to. Well, that just begs
2: the question, right? Because we still have the same language in cooperation and with the approval of. We st- that, that same language appears in, 19, in the 1930s when the State Geological Board was created, right?
1: That language appears. What I'm putting out is the 40-year time bar does not appear. And that's the explicit language that Save Our Calhoun is really... Um, Council,
4: I, if I may, Council, um, I'm just to follow up on that question, I think it's um, respondents' position that the language in Subdivision 3, in cooperation with the county boards and with their approval, because it references the county boards, that then kicks you into... 05, and um, and then the, the, more, the more full process. It, why isn't that right? And, and after you answer that, I'm curious if you could answer, and maybe this is a follow-up on Justice Anderson's questions, what does that language mean if it doesn't mean that it kicks you into 05?
1: Okay. Um, you're absolutely right that that is my opponent's argument, right, that the language of Subdivision 3 kind of incorporates by reference the limitations in 83.05. But Your Honor, the words just don't say that. You can certainly have a situation where the legislature intends for a commissioner to work in cooperation with a county board without also meaning that the commissioner then has to go through a petition process and get 15 signatures and necessarily have three hearings and all of
4: that So, what does it mean then if it doesn't mean that what does it mean
1: well it leaves it up to the commissioner i think to decide exactly how to cooperate with the county board but it certainly means the commissioner has to get the county board's approval and that was clearly kind of a breathtaking argument It leaves it up to the
2: commissioner. So the commissioner gets to decide what cooperation with the counties mean. Again, against the backdrop of the legislature's decision in the 1920s, that the body that makes decisions should be the body closest to the voters, closest to the lake, the counties. Now you're saying the DNR commissioner gets to decide what it means.
1: Again, we have to effectuate the legislative intent here. And I think it's important to think about the fact that these statutes, so the two parallel statutes that existed in separate chapters for about 50 years, the legislature had a chance to look at them again in 1990 (laughs) when it decided to put all the water laws together. And instead of making a change, right, instead of saying, oh, you know, we really meant to have a 40-year limitation on the commissioner's authority, It did no such thing. It just put them next to each other.
4: Council, if I could, how has, if you know, how has the commissioner used that language in subdivision three in the past? I mean, because one thing that occurs to me is that maybe it comes into play when county boards or others have just ideas or you, you have a situation where you do have duplicate named lakes and they bring that issue to the commissioner and that gets talked about and discussed, but but I don't know. So I'm, I'm curious, how has the commissioner used that language under subdivision three in the past, when it's proceeded under subdivision three?
1: Your Honor, the record um, doesn't give us a lot of information about that, but I'll tell you, in general, there's three times when um, the commissioner is likely to consider a name change if it's been more than 40 years. That's if there's evidence that the name as it's written is somehow incorrect, right? Like, let's say they named it after someone, but the, the spelling was wrong. Or um, if the lake name is duplicative, we have a lot of big lakes and long lakes, And Does like that, that
5: sometimes happen in where one lake is in one county and another lake is in another county?
1: There's no information in the record about that, but if you look at 83A.06, it does say that the counties are supposed to move towards eliminating duplication of lake names. It doesn't say just within one county, for example, Your Honor.
5: And that maybe could explain subdivision three.
1: Yes. Um, finally, Justice Hudson, the third thing I want to say, and that's most applicable here, is when there are offensive or derogatory names. That's a time when... Um, the legislature has made clear in that 1995 um, legislation about Squaw Lake that that's an appropriate time to change the name of lakes after 40 years.
3: Council, I was thinking of the Chief Justice's question about who's closest to the people. Let's say the petition process of 05 to 07 is accomplished and the county board issues an order. Is that order final or can the uh, commissioner of DNR uh, countermand that order?
1: Under 83.04, no county order is final or official until the DNR commissioner approves that name. Um, That's partly so that we can have good coordination with our federal body and make sure that both federal and state names um, are the same.
3: So the commissioner has final authority even when the 05 to 07 process is pursued.
1: Yes, thank you for pointing that out. I see my time here is nearly up. I um, want to reiterate that DNR is asking this court to reverse the Court of Appeals and allow the lake to stay Bidet Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Cardall. Uh,
6: may it please the court. Uh, Chief Justice and Associate Justices, I'm representing the respondent. What happened in 1990? The state legislature enacted a public policy that lake names that have been used over 40 years uh, cannot be changed without the state legislature granting additional authority uh, to whatever party to rename
3: those Counsel, that happened a lot earlier than 1990, didn't it? The 40-year limitation? Uh, yes it did uh, what year did what year did it happen
6: in, back in the 1930s I believe the counties had that restriction placed on them and the the, the point is that the council
7: um, as I understand your position is that a lake name cannot be changed if it's been in existence for more than 40 years is that accurate yes and what was the original name of Lake Calhoun
6: uh, the uh, the, uh, the the original name was Lake Calhoun. It was on the list of the no. DNR. What was the name before Lake Calhoun? Uh, there there were there's a dispute about that. One of the proposals is the Mid- Bidimakaska.
7: and that was named by the Dakota people, correct?
6: Uh, that's my understanding.
7: And that lake name was in existence for well in excess of forty years,
6: correct? Uh, it, well, it was yes. It was used yes.
7: Okay. And what was the process used for changing that lake name? Uh,
6: the, the, the process that was used uh, for changing the lake name was a process where the, under Minnesota law, uh, lake names got official names. By white settlers? Uh, by, by the people of Minnesota. By white settlers? So that, the, that they would have used that name, right? Correct. It was not of the original people? That's right. So, so there have been uh, uh, continuously uh, two uses of names for the lake, and what we're talking about here is the the official uh, lake name of the state of Minnesota.
2: Can, can we just? I want to take you back to the argument you started with, though. The 1990. What is it about the 1990 legislation that you think made a change here?
6: Well, the uh, well, I mean, it's the present law, and so the the uh, section 645 encourages not only courts but public officials to read the present law to know well, what the counsel, law is. But, counsel, the
4: law itself said it wasn't making any substantive changes, that it was a clarification and just a recodification of the prior law. And I think uh, appellants make that point pretty clearly in their brief, but it says that in the legislation itself, that this is not a change. Well, the,
6: the, um, uh, the We first start with the legal text, and so we have to follow the canons of 645, and the canons of 645 are our guide, and we start with the present law. Only if there isn't a plain meaning would we search for pre-legal history, legislative history, whatever you want to call it. And so here, the legal text, under the two canons of statutory construction that we report apply, and the Court of Appeals did, one would be uh, the first part of 645.08, and that would be using following the rules of grammar and using the common and approved usages, and the second one would be uh, regarding the implied uh, powers of an administrative official. You have a kind of express powers, implied powers. Implied powers are only there if they're fairly drawn and fairly evident.
3: So, counsel, let me. I think Justice Hudson may be onto something here. Is it your argument that it was in 1990 that the commissioner no longer became able to change the name of a lake over 40 years old? Uh,
6: it, it, well that 's the only <laughs> that 's the only question i 'm asking right i mean that 's the court has to ask that but question it, is that, that
3: the point. moment is that the moment when the commissioner lo- lost any authority to change the name of a lake over forty years old i, I haven 't studied that why would i the, the, the point is well, it 's your, your case what it 's your case you 're saying there 's no we, authority we study what
6: the present law means today that 's an historical question that isn 't relevant to the proceeding today what 's relevant is according to six forty five is we read the
5: statute. We we, well, the what if, it, what, what if we think it is relevant? So, what would your answer be?
6: Uh, if, 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 for some reason, we go up beyond the present text, there, there, there was a, a, a previous uh, uh, limitation: uh, the DNR commissioner was not allowed to uh, uh, rename lakes. There had to be county approval, and I think, in fact, it would have run afoul of the constitutional prohibition on specific laws. So, with respect.
5: A, a, a law that generally gives someone, a, a public official, the authority, runs against the law. The constitutional provision that says legislatures can't pass special laws. The
6: the uh, yeah, I, I, we haven't briefed that, but yeah, I, I think there there'd be concerns that if the DNR commissioner could, as the DNR commissioner. Well, how could we ever change, give the, how, the, how could the we
5: ever point. give agency officials any authority to do anything then?
6: The, uh, the, it's, it's the total discretion that I'm concerned about, uh, Justice. That if the DNR commissioner has total discretion to change the name of lake at any time, uh, there, there's concern. I mean, if there are standards, uh, that would be different. The separation of powers principle, addressing the very question uh, just asked, is the the legislature has large discretion, as the Justice mentioned, in turning the means through which its laws shall be administered. But administrative officers uh, also may be clothed with the power to exercise discretion under the law, but not a discretion as what the law shall be. So here we're dealing with the present law, and under the canons, uh, the general and specific canons I mentioned, if we look carefully at the DNR commissioner's order, you know, that kind of uh, thinking is allowed. The DNR commissioner's order violates the statutory canons by not mentioning the canons and not following them. This is not an exercise of legal history. We had this power, the state legislature did something, now we still have the power. You have to read the statute according to the canons of statutory construction, and that's how you get there. So,
2: Council, I I just uh, want to take you to the the earlier question, um, which we haven't talked with you yet uh, about, and that is whether the writ is an appropriate remedy here. In your petition, you cite section 480.04. And you cite the Rice case, and so, are you in filing this petition? Were you invoking our court's original jurisdiction, and you only filed it in the district court because we said in Rice that's how these things are supposed to go, or or were you? Well, maybe I should just leave it there. Uh,
6: our, our view is the Minnesota Supreme Court, in its infant wisdom, has preserved and evolved a unique. Uh, Self governing tool, the writ of quo warranto, for a very limited purpose to be applied in rare circumstances to go hold government officials accountable when they go sideways and insist upon a continuing uh, uh, excess use of legal authority. And so, when there's a continuing uh, use of legal authority that a public official doesn't have, then quo warranto may be used under certain in rare circumstances for a very limited purpose the and rare so what's the
7: ongoing case. abuse
6: as evident in the uh, court record uh, and this has happened in previous cases uh, the core warranto issue is raised and then the public official uh, makes a decision the public official makes a decision in one case like Minnesota voters alliance peace secretary of state the public official, after the writ was issued, went to the court to get the law amended. Another case uh, involving uh, the University of Minnesota, uh, the University of Minnesota was sued for uh, fetal tissue research, and while the appeal was pending, they went to the state legislature and got the law changed. Both those petitions were successful in the sense that the parties were claiming, the public officials, that they had authority they didn't have, and they went to get the law changed so that they had the authority they, they purported to have. And so the idea is that, in this case, that the continuing authority that the DNR commissioner is claiming is the authority to rename lakes, the lake names have been used for over 40 years. Similar in the Matson case, the treasurer came forward and said, well, there's these legislative statutes that give the Department of Finance all my powers, and I have constitutional prerogatives. So this, this is where Quo Warranto comes in, where there's a, continuing obligation but I want to get back to to rare or limited and the point is it's limited because as this court knows if anyone knows this court knows that there's a lot of uh, public officials out there and as the case in Rice uh, Rice v. Connelly the the Supreme Court indicated uh, that and this was Chief Justice Alexander Keith writing for the court we comment further that the reinstatement of quo warranto jurisdiction in the district court is intended to exist side by side with the appropriate alternative forms of remedy heretofore
3: available. Counsel. that leads right into a question I was going to ask you. Let's, uh, you, quo waronto is a very challenging field. Let's say the court decides you're incorrect with respect, that this is just not the right vehicle for the challenge to the DNR commissioner's authority. Would you want the court to construe your petition for quo waronto on behalf of your clients as also one seeking a declaratory judgment and an injunction against the commissioner? Uh, Well, uh, Your Honor, um,
6: it's my duties to the court, and the Declaratory Judgment Act provides a remedy. So the court knows that when the state legislature wants to create a private cause of action, it knows how to do that. Data uh, data Praxis Act, Administrative Procedures Act, um, Minnesota Environmental Rights Act, The Domestic Abuse Act, the Harassment Restraining Order Act, the Replevin. There are a lot of acts. So there are a lot of private causes of action created by statute. The Declaratory Judgment Act is not one of those. So
3: you you don't think you've got a cause of action except under Quo Warranto or a Certiorari as you tried before?
6: uh, The the Quo Warranto would be the last thing you would consider because of these types of hearings. <laughs> and so, so you, you, you only want to use it when it's appropriate. Remember, the Declaratory Judgment Act deals with anticipated damages. You go to file a Declaratory Judgment Act because you want that remedy. You want to file that lawsuit a little earlier than you would have. You don't want to have to wait for the breach. You don't want to have to wait for the prosecution. The Declaratory Judgment Act does not provide a private cause of action to the government. Uh, there's decades and decades. Oh, but, of-
4: counsel, the purpose of the Declaratory Judgment Act is also to determine the, party, the the relative rights of the parties. And it seems to me that's what you were trying to achieve, is to have a court determine uh, what, are the, what are the relative rights uh, of the parties. What is here the commissioner's authority, if any, to do what the commissioner did?
6: Right. Well, yes, but but the, it's a remedy, in the sense that you still have to have a common law cause of action or a private law cause of action. So usually they, they arise when you have property or contracts or business rights. Usually they arise when there's a sort of a tortious interference with a business, and then possibly uh, rather than violating the business regulation. You'd violate.
4: Your point is because you, there was no other independent cause of action, you had no choice but to file this writ. Right, and I
6: can cite decades, and we all know these cases. And by the way, I think just as a practical matter, I mean, really, no one thinks that I can represent everybody to do a declaratory judgment action against that government entity, any government entity, for violating the Minnesota Constitution. I mean, that's why would we have the Minnesota Environmental Rights Act? Why would we have the Administrative Procedures Act? Why would these private causes of action be written out where the legislature says you can sue the government for doing these things? The, the
3: reason I was asking, Counsel, was that you cite in your petition McKee versus Likens, which is a taxpayer standing case seeking a declaratory judgment and an injunction. So I, I just thought that might be a vehicle that you uh, would find attractive if we didn't go for a quo or anto, but it's but it's your case. You can tell us what you think you can, your rights are, right. your clients' case, rights
6: right. are. Right, in that case, the, the Administrative Procedures Act provided the private cause of action. So again, um, you know, a Declaratory Judgment Act provides a remedy, and I don't know, that might have been necessary in that case. But the Administrative Procedures Act is very important. The writ of certiorari is very important. Uh, we tried the writ of certiorari approach, and, and the Court of Appeals said, this is not a quasi-judicial uh, decision. So you can't do this, and so then it comes to your your question, all practical. Well, then what do you do? What do you do when uh, you know uh, 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 when there's a uh, government official who's exceeding uh, legal authority? And the lesson from Matson Rice v. Connolly, um, the two cases I mentioned, are you file a quo warranto. Now, one of the concerns I have is that uh, with respect to the, the Attorney General's office and and just the idea of well how do we how do we manage this when the Attorney General has a certain hostility to quote warranto so you know we've heard that I mean the the, 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 uh, Attorney General's office wants it abolished so ostensibly you know the uh, Attorney General could have brought the quote petition for quote warranto here I mean there was a decision to be made right the NR Commissioner issued the order Is the Attorney General going to take one side, or is the Attorney General's office going to take the other side? Maybe 30 years ago when the Attorney General's office, when I started practice, when the Attorney General's office didn't have Assistant Attorney Generals dedicated each department, it would have come out differently. So so the point would be, there's attack here on citizens filing petitions for writ of quo warranto but if the Attorney General isn't interested in doing it, the court should take note. That look, if the, if the attorney general's office isn't interested in uh, ensuring the limits on public officials' power are followed, then citizens should have access to the common law writ, so it happens. Because there should. I don't be know disres- that
7: that's a fair statement. I mean, clearly they have a position in this instance, but I don't know that there's been a statement put out by the attorney general that is suggesting what what you're saying. I don't. So I don't know that that's a fair statement.
2: And. I don't know that it's actually relevant here I mean well there is I mean to be fair there is an argument in the Attorney General's brief that the court should abolish the writ
5: so can can I come back to the actual statutory language sure um, so there is this question about the facts on the ground of this case that this started with a petition to the county does that uh, do, how? What is the relevance of that in your in your mind? I I know you have the statutory argument, but does the kind of those facts does that impact how we should think about this case?
6: I I don't think so because the the only process to change uh, the lake name currently under present law is for lake names that have been around for less than forty years, and so we kind of had this this process that wasn't you know legally authorized to change the lake name in 83.8.05, point oh five. It says, uh, except that a name which has existed for 40 years may not be changed under the provisions of sections 83.05 to 83.07. And as the uh, Associate Justice mentioned earlier, our argument is 83.02, referencing cooperation with the county boards, and with their approval, the, the, the commissioner can change the name of the lakes. And so it, it's kicked over. So 83.02, according to the regular rules of grammar and according to the common and approved usage, Those things are connected. The DNR can't change the name of a lake without the approval of the board. The board can't give approval for lake names that have been used for over 40 years. And so it seems like it's fairly pedestrian. And so I understand uh, the the point about the the Attorney uh, General's Office, too. I'm not here to make trouble with the Attorney General's Office, but it's important to get these things right.
3: Well, let, let me focus on uh, 83.8.02. You referenced sub, subdivision three. The, the attorney general is arguing that the DNR commissioner had authority under subdivision one to determine the correct and most appropriate name of the lake. Um, what, what, what in plain language is the meaning of the word determine?
6: Well, I, I, I think here uh, in, in the first instance, the, the department is an old statute 1937 back then there might have been hundreds or thousands of uh, features and lakes and streams to be named I don't know but in the first instance the Commissioner of natural resources determines the correct and most appropriate name for the lakes
3: so so determine only means the initial determination
6: Uh, Well, it means something like that because there's another word later saying change.
3: So you distinguish between, you say determine, subdivision one doesn't apply because it says determine and subdivision three says change. Correct. Okay, well then now let me take you to 83A.06. Do you have that in front of you? Yes. And that's talking about uh, name change. And I'd like to direct your attention to subdivision six, which is captioned determination and it says, the county board shall hear all parties, make an order by resolution, determining the name of the body of water described in the petition. The name determined by the board at the hearing is the legal name of the body of water. Doesn't that, as used in 83A.06 subdivision six, doesn't determination include change, and change includes determination?
6: Yeah, in that that specific uh, uh, subdivision it does, but I don't think it changes the meaning of the whole. Uh,
3: Well, then let me take you to 83.8.07, subdivision one. Do you have that in front of you? Yes? Yes. It says, in determining the name of a body of water, the county board may not, if possible, duplicate names. The county board shall select and approve a name as it determines is in the permanent best interest of the affected county we use the meaning of the word determines in 80, 83 a 7 and use it in the same way in 83.02, doesn't that suggest that under subdivision one, the commissioner does have the authority as part of the determination to change the name to the most correct and most appropriate name? Uh, no, and
6: the reason is that um, when you look at the word change in 83A.02, it seems like the legislature intended uh, to connect that with the limitation, except that a name which has existed for four years may not be changed under the provisions a A3 A3 305 A380.7. So it seems like the word change was used specifically to connect to the limitation. I understand the court's reading, but, uh, but I think the, uh, the using the common and improved usage and following the rules of grammar, one would have to conclude that the change is changing the official name and the limitation applies
3: so the word determine in 8302 subdivision one is a more limited term than the meaning of the term determined in 05 to 07 is that your argument
6: no it's simple it's very simple the state legislature wanted to create a limitation on change so it made sure that the NR commissioner when it was changing a name had to get County Board approval which was limited to lake names of under 40 years so we have to uh, you know, look at that. I guess with respect to uh, 83.02, that's that's how simple our argument is. I guess with respect to my last few minutes, I could uh, cover a few points uh, on the Minnesota uh, uh, petition for for uh, writ of quo warranto. And, and again, um, you know, these may. Can seem I just like-
5: can I just ask why are you think in 83 The legislature used the word the and and, and that is also attached to duplication of names in the state why they use the plural for county boards and with their approval instead of saying in cooperation with a county board and with its approval Uh, doesn't uh, that suggest that these are situations where there's duplication in multiple counties
6: yeah my original thought and that's another thought but my thought was that some of the lakes cross county boundaries so both so, if you read it like in that light of that, in cooperation, in cooperation, the county boards and with their approval change the name of lakes. That in the instance where you'd have a, a lake crossing a county boundary, that both county boards would be consulted.
5: Or if they're in two separate counties, two lakes that are have the same name in two separate counties? Uh, Which is not the case here, I yes, guess is my main. Yes. Neither of those cases is this case. Yeah, I guess
3: yes. So, Council, help me out on your argument. If the argument is subdivision three of eighty-three hundred two loops in the O five to O seven process, do you let's say the commissioner decides we need to change a name because it's duplicate, duplicative, and then we need approval of the county board, right?
6: For a lake names of less than forty years, correct?
3: Well, but. The, the approval would have to be under 05 to 07, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, uh, you know, I. So, my question is how is the 05 to 07 process triggered for the, for, for the county board to give approval? Do they need to round up 15 citizens to go start a petition to approve the commissioner's determination? The, the, the
6: petition for the, the name is started by 15 or more legal voters residing in the county. And then it would
3: Okay, forward. let me give you a hypothetical. There's a lake that was named 10 years ago. It was named Green Bay Packer Lake. We all agree that is not a correct and appropriate name.
2: <laughs> and it's offensive.
3: <laughs> so the commissioner says, I'm going to change the name of Green Bay Packer Lake to Vikings Lake. But to do that, by your interpretation as I understand it, the commissioner would need a county board approval, right? Correct. So can the county just go ahead and pass a resolution saying, we approve of the commissioner's decision to change the name from Green Bay Packer Lake to Vikings Lake? Or does, it need, does there need to be a petition process under 05 to 07? There needs to be a petition process pre- previous to the
6: DNR commissioner making the decision. And that is a preference for local Well, I decision. give you
3: credit, you're at least consistent.
6: Well, I think the other thing about the struggles in interpreting the statute, other according to its ordinary and common usage, is the the judicial department uh, needs to be careful about these administrative officials who want to uh, exceed the authority of the statute. Basically, they have plenty of discretion under the statute, but they want to go further than that, and that should be. But preserved.
3: if it's if it, let's say the the packer name is more than forty years old, can it be changed, and if so, how? The way that would work,
6: as I was mentioning, thank you. Uh, is that then the DNR commissioner would seek from the legislative authority that which has been reserved, and that is that additional power to rename lakes that have been used for over forty years. So if if, uh, if uh, you know we were the legislature, we'd be but sitting there saying you,
3: the legislature itself couldn't pass a bill saying we're changing the name of Packer Lake, could it? Um,
6: it could, it could authorize the process to change the name, correct?
3: But it can't do so itself under the Constitution. Uh, uh, it's uh, not this case, but
6: yeah, I think there is a, a constitutional limitation with respect to specific laws. Uh, so, so to conclude, um, we're asking the court to affirm the Court of Appeals decision with respect to interpreting 83a a and, uh, and also to ask the court to reaffirm uh, the utility of the writ of quo warranto as the Supreme Court, particularly Chief Justice Alexander Keith, stated in Rice v. Connolly. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Counsel. Um, Ms. Kramer, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Well,
1: I'm going to stay in the statutory interpretation land that... You all were just in with Mr. Cardall. Oh, I forgot, that I'm shorter. Um, I want to point out that in the original petition for writ of certiorari, or sorry, for writ of quo warranto here, all that Save Our Calhoun was alleging was that the 40-year time limitation applied to DNR. It was not alleging that DNR didn't have the underlying authority to determine or change. So this court does not necessarily have to figure out exactly which paragraph that the commissioner's order properly falls within here. It could simply rest on the idea that there's a clear time bar in the county petition process starting in 83A.05 and no similar time bar in the DNR process. And again, the language of that process, um, of that time bar, is very clear. Subdivision 1 of 83A.05 says, and I quote, a name which has existed for 40 years may not be changed under the provisions of sections 83A.05 to 83A.07. And again, the legislature had the chance to look at that in 1990 when it was recodifying these. It had to put in those correct statutory references. And again, in 1990, it chose to say that 40-year time bar only applies to that county petition process.
3: And back in the day, back in 1925 and thereafter, when it was these, uh, the statute was within Chapter 378, it said the same thing, didn't it? You can't change uh, using Chapter 378, a lake name that's more than 40 years old.
1: Exactly, Your Honor. And when the legislature acted in 1990 in this recodification, not only did it say, as Justice Hudson pointed out, that it didn't mean to alter the meaning of the law at all, But at that point, it's deemed to have been aware of the two attorney general opinions that had come out in both 1940 and 1964, saying that the DNR was not subject to that same 40-year time bar.
0: But Let me ask about the argument that opposing counsel makes on Quo Warranto here. He suggests that, um, well, let me just ask you to respond rather than try to cabin you. Tell me, how do you respond to his argument about... About quo warranto.
1: May I ask which part of his? Well, so
0: are? so. Do you uh, agree? Or do you agree with his uh, position that the declaratory judgment action would not permit the kind of claim he's making here? You know, I know, for example, you cite the Woodbury case, but in that Woodbury case, we had a plaintiff who was directly affected by the actions of the uh, city. There, does that make a difference?
1: Well, Your Honor, I think um, respondent has conflated some issues of standing with jurisdiction, let's say, whether someone can bring an action. So, you know, we challenge standing all alone. Um, it's standing all along. But if we put that aside, right, and assume that someone has enough of a special interest in what's going on to stand before the court and be able to bring an action, I think the cases, the hostage, the Fletcher, Otto, all suggest that the declaratory judgment action is enough married with some other theory to come into court and have your issue
4: be heard. And on that point, counsel, I, just, I think his point, maybe more specifically, his point was you need that underlying cause of action, if I heard him correctly. And so I was curious, along with Justice Anderson, what's your response to that, that you can't bring a DEC action unless you've got that underlying cause, uh, a specific underlying cause of action. Do you agree
3: with that? That's absolutely true.
1: The, the declaratory okay. Judgment Act. Doesn't stand by itself. You have to have a secondary theory. But many plaintiffs come and challenge government actions all the time, as you all well know, and they come up with lots of secondary theories. So some of them are that the action was ultra virus, right? That it's unconstitutional. There are many ways to come to court and so,
4: in other words, he could have said, uh, respondents could have said, in line with their argument that the commissioner has no authority to do this, that this is ultra virus. That could have been the underlying theory.
1: I believe so, Your Honor. Um, you know, assuming he meets the, the other requirements of standing and all of right. that.
2: What happens if we conclude that this was not a proper remedy?
1: then you should reverse the Court of Appeals and reinstate the District Court judgment, which reached the same conclusion, that because there was no ongoing action here, that the writ of quo renta was inappropriate.
2: I guess what I'm getting at is, is there still a remedy for these petitioners? Can they have a do-over? Can they file a declaratory judgment action now in Ramsey County and start this whole thing over?
1: So I don't love being in the position of coming up with the, the, the new case for my opponent, Chief Justice Gilday, but um, I think it's at least conceivable, right? It would depend what that tag-along theory is, and because I looked it up, and this court has recently had held, and I think it was Weavewood case or something like that, that the Declaratory Judgment Act doesn't have its own statute of limitation, and you have to look at what the other cause of action is. So... I don't know, it depends exactly how they would style it, but it is conceivable that they could start over here. Um, but on the Declaratory Judgment Act piece, I wanted to note for the court uh, that really the bulk of the quo warranto cases that this court has issued, and there's nearly 300 of them, come before the Uniform Declaratory Judgment Act was passed in 1933. So there was a gap in the law in that point when the writ of core renta was being used frequently because there wasn't that declaratory judgment act. After that passed, this court has said a number of times to litigants, like in the town of Barnesville case, hey, you have a DJ action. Please go back and do that, right? This isn't the kind of extraordinary act that we need to see. Um, Finally, if this court does want to get into the weeds on um, which of the paragraphs of 83a.02 is most applicable here. I wanted to um, follow up on some of Justice Lihau's points about the word determine, because I agree that it's used later in the statute, in the county petition process, to mean both the initial giving of a name and changing of a name. So we could take in that broad definition in paragraph one, meaning that DNR's power under paragraph one encompasses the initial naming and the changing. Further support for that is that paragraph one is the only part of that statute that talks about DNR's obligation to um, log things in the state register, even though that would similarly apply to paragraph two, passing upon names, or paragraph three, changing names. But it's only listed in one, suggesting that one is the big catch-all authority provision. So those things together, um, further support the commissioners.
3: I know you think the commissioner can proceed under subdivision one, but as far as your argument under subdivision three, how do you interpret subdivision three? Is subdivision three triggered only when there's a duplicate issue? Or is subdivision three triggered whenever there's any change of name? So let's assume you've got a very unique name and the commissioner wants to change it. Does the commissioner necessarily need to proceed under three <coughs> or because there's no duplicate involved, Because there, or because there's no duplicate involved, can proceed solely under one?
1: Justice Lillahog, the language of three... <coughs> doesn't have the kind of limiting language that would be required to say it can only be used when there's a duplicate involved. For example, it doesn't say exclusively or it doesn't say only. It just says with the end goal in mind of eliminating duplication. I think that what the legislature meant to do there was just to say, hey, this is one thing you should look at when you're changing.
3: So let's say there's there's one lake name, one lake that has one name. The commissioner wants to change it. Then would that necessarily require county board approval?
1: No, the commissioner could go under subdivision one. In that instance, our position. Well, but is I the thought commissioner-
3: you said three wasn't just limited. Well, it wasn't limited to duplicate issues.
1: I'm saying anytime the commissioner, maybe I misunderstood your question. I thought you were saying anytime there's a change, does the commissioner have to go under three?
3: And your answer to that is,
1: he or she would have a choice. They can. Uh, choose to go with county approval under What's,
3: What Doesn't that make three superfluous?
1: I don't think it does. You have to remember that the commissioner, um, before the 1990 change, the commissioner was also included in the county petition process, suggesting the commissioner always had a choice. Did he or she want to go along with the county and get broader public approval for a name change, or did he or she want to kind of go it alone? And so that choice, again, is reflected in paragraphs one and three. I see my time is up. Again, DNR asks this court to confirm that it has the authority to change lake names even after 40 years and to clarify when the writ of cool rental is appropriate. Thank you, counsel. Thanks
2: to all counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.